This episode of Historically Thinking was made possible by a grant from the Greater Good Science Center at the University of California at Berkeley. To learn more, go to ggsc.berkeley.edu. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, this is the first of my interviews with historians touching on questions of intellectual humility and historical thinking. Today's is with Jonathan Zimmerman. He is the Judy and Howard Berkowitz Professor in Education and Professor of History of Education at the University of Pennsylvania. He received his PhD in 1993 from the Johns Hopkins University. His books have dealt with a variety of topics related to the history of education, including sex and alcohol education, history and religion in the curriculum, Americans who have taught overseas, and historical memory in public schooling. Jonathan Zimmerman is also, I think, notable for the variety of opinion pieces he has published across a range of American publications. Jonathan Zimmerman has been on Historically Thinking twice before, in episode 188, History of Apparently Eternal Inability of American College Professors to Teach, and in episode 205, where we wondered if there could ever be a civic history, a history for the common good. I began this interview, as I am beginning all of these interviews on intellectual humility and historical thinking, by asking him how he first became interested in history. I don't think I really started to get engaged in history until I was a Peace Corps volunteer, ironically, because that was the first time I had been at a sufficient remove, I think, from the United States to think about its history. It shouldn't surprise you that most people who are Peace Corps volunteers who become academics become anthropologists of the place where they served. So in my own Peace Corps group, I can name three people that are anthropologists of South Asia. However, it had the opposite effect on me. I absolutely loved being in Nepal where I served in the Peace Corps and I learned a huge amount. But one of the things I learned was how impenetrable Nepal was to me and that I, I wasn't Nepali, I was American. And it was the first time I really started to think about American history. So there I was in a three-day walk from vehicular traffic in a very caste-bound Hindu society. And I started thinking about caste. And that was where I read The Strange Career of Jim Crow. Now, again, the American South is not Nepal, but the American South absolutely had a caste system. And this was really the first time I became curious about it. I was an urban studies major in college. And to be fair, I did study some history. Urban studies was and remains a kind of cross-disciplinary field. So I did some history, but also many other things, including anthro and sociology and all that. And I didn't imagine myself becoming a historian. And indeed, when I was in Nepal, I didn't imagine that either. I just knew that I wanted to teach it. When I returned from Nepal, I went to be with my girlfriend in Vermont, who became and is my wife. And she was in medical school in Burlington. And I started teaching at South Burlington High School, uh, with, where she had actually been a student some six years earlier. And I started teaching history there. When did you decide that you would pursue a doctorate? I decided that when I followed her the next step to Baltimore, where she got a residency and I taught in the inner city schools. And although I was a very successful teacher in Nepal and in Vermont, I was not a successful teacher in Baltimore. And I was stuck teaching sixth graders, which I've never liked, but that wasn't the only problem. The problem was I wasn't, I didn't know enough about the city and I didn't know enough about who I was teaching. So I knew a couple months in that it wasn't going to work. 
And the other thing I discovered after teaching history and social studies for a few, uh, a few years was that I just didn't know enough about it. And so that's what really brought me to grad school. And frankly, if things had worked out better at the school in Baltimore, maybe I would still be a K through 12 teacher. What school were you teaching at? I was at Southeast Middle School, which is over near uh, what used to be Francis Scott Key Hospital in East Baltimore. Yeah. Okay. It's now part of the Hopkins system. Yeah. Oh. If you're describing yourself to other historians, what's your current interest or discipline within the historical field? I'm a U.S. historian, and my specialty is the history of schools and universities. Okay. I think in large part because I was an educator before I became a historian. I think it was a rather natural step for me to study the history of education because I knew that's what I was passionate about. And so when I got to Hopkins, I decided that what I would do as a grad student was study the history of schooling. So as a researcher, but also as a writing researcher, what are some of the questions that have particularly perplexed you over a long period? The lasting question is how you have democratic education and democracy. If democratic education means an education that prepares us to be citizens of democracy, how do you do that? And most of all, how do you persuade the demos, those pesky citizens, that they should want it? Everyone has their favorite quote about the subject, but mine is from Thomas Jefferson after he had failed for the third time to persuade the Virginia House of Burgesses, i.e. The, the General Assembly, to create a state education system. And he said, I can almost quote it literally, this isn't exact words, but what he said was, I was in the position of a physician trying to administer a medicine to a patient that didn't know they needed it. Have some education. It's going to be good for you. It's going to make you a democratic citizen. But the good burgers of Virginia their response is, you say we need this. We're already, we already have some kind of very primitive kinds of family and community-based learning, and we're doing just fine. And no thank you, no sale. So how do we create democratic education in a way that will help us prepare citizens? The only way is to persuade those same citizens that they should need that education. And how do you do that? That's a question that you can give your life to. Yes, I have. Yeah. yeah. And it's a question that keeps you, probably still keeps you up. Constantly, especially now. It's never been more urgent. Yeah. So yeah. You, then, of course, you've broken that down to ask that there are sub-questions within that question. So what are some of those sort of sub-questions, ancillary questions, corollary questions? Well, I think one of the big sub-questions within that is what's the role of educators and especially of expertise in that whole deal? Al, I think all men and women are created equal. I don't think all ideas are created equal. I think some ideas are more accurate and more meaningful than other ideas. And I believe in expertise. I believe that experts have a really important role in this entire machine. And obviously, in the past six years, we've witnessed how dangerous it is when people become cynical and dismissive about experts. So I think the other big question that sub-question, as you call it accurately, within all this is, what is the role of expertise in all of this? Richard Hofstadter wrote a book in the early 60s that won the Pulitzer Prize called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life. And the thesis of that book is that intellectuals and expertise will never really have a solid home in, in America because we're too democratic. And Hofstadter thought expertise was, by definition, non-democratic. 
because some people knew more than others. And according to the theories of expertise, should have more authority on that basis. And Hofstadter believed that because the United States was arguably the most small D democratic country, it was also the country that was going to grant the least authority and legitimacy to experts. Your most recent book has been about the difficulty of becoming expert <laughs> or, or the way that expertise in one area, say history, does not translate to expertise in another area that is teaching. Exactly. And what is an expert in teaching? I'm credentials an expert in history, Al. And what that means is I spent a very long time reading and writing about it. I wrote a very long dissertation. It was certified by fellow experts. And to your point, I recently wrote a book about college teaching. Now, that book makes me, I think, an expert on the history of college teaching. Does it certify me, however, as an expert teacher in my own right? I think the answer to that is no. I think you could write a brilliant book about college teaching and be a terrible teacher. Because I think that teaching and research are different functions. I think they're related, obviously, but I think they require you to do different activities. And we've created, speaking of experts, we've created a system of expertise in this country where we certify experts in research, but we don't certify them in teaching, certainly not at the university level. So we have a system. It's not a perfect system, but we have a system for figuring out who are the experts in research and how we're going to rank and value and reward it. We don't have that, not in any sort of meaningful or sophisticated way when it comes to teaching. So let's talk about arguments. I've used this, for, I've used this formulation of the argument being the best answer to the best question that you've asked. That's your best question to the best question, your best answer to the best question you've asked, not the platonic <laughs> ideal of best answer to the platonic ideal of best question. So what's your best argument? What's the one you're, or at least the one you're proudest of, the one that maybe caused you the most sweat, might not be the most obvious to people who've read all your stuff, but the one that you, the one that you like. I think the one that I'm probably proudest of is the one that I make in my second book, Who's America, which I recently revised into a 20th anniversary edition, about what I call the patriotic roots of multicultural education. I went into that book trying to figure out why the kind of things I did at Hopkins as a grad student, you didn't really see happening in K-12 schools. I'm talking about the debate and deliberation about the nature of America. So why didn't it? Like, why didn't those hard questions about liberty and freedom and slavery, why didn't they end up in high school classrooms? And to answer the question, I first went looking for the usual suspects, the people that you're taught to suspect uh, as when you're learning to become a liberal historian. The American Revolution, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> the American Legion, the veterans of foreign wars, the sons and daughters of the American Revolution, because I figured, not unfairly, that those would be the people that block this sort of critical interpretation from the schools. And I found a little of that, but not much. Who blocked it? Who kept it out? German-Americans, Polish-Americans, Italian-Americans, Irish-Americans, Jewish-Americans, African-Americans. They rallied to defend the old heroic interpretation. They were largely the ones, immigrant groups and racial minorities, they kept these critical perspectives out. And here's why. They were trying to read themselves into the American story. But from their point of view, if you start raising really hard questions about the American story, you're diminishing their respective contributions to it. 
So the American Revolution, especially with people like Carl Becker and Charles Beard, had started to raise big questions about, like, how could this be a revolution for freedom if we had enslaved a whole bunch of people? And by the way, why were a fourth of us Tories and ran to Canada? They didn't want any of that. Because if you start to do that, then you're going to diminish their contribution to that effort. Take Polish Americans, for example. You, uh, uh, most people have heard about Thaddeus Kosciuszko because there's now a beautiful bridge connecting Brooklyn and Queens that's named after him. Let me tell you, in Chicago in 1920s, 250,000 people came out for Kosciuszko Day. It was a thing. It was a huge thing. And those people, they don't want Beardian or Beckerian perspectives in the schools because if that so that Kosciuszko becomes less heroic and he's their guy. And so I would say that was uh, probably at least uh, the most original or challenging idea that I put forth because the idea that this idea of pluralism and multiculturalism might have patriotic roots and some very conservative consequences wasn't something that I had considered um, until I got into this research. So I heard in that answer is that you went in with a conception of what you would find. Correct. And you were subverted. You were subverted yeah. by the archives. Yes. I thought that it would be like basically bad white conservative Protestants that were responsible for the omission of these perspectives in schools. And I was wrong about that. Why didn't you write that? Why I did. did. You, why? No. Why didn't you write what you wanted to find? I imagine other people do. Definitely. You know why at the end of the day? Because it would be dull. <laughs> Seriously. I have one life to live. I, I've lived in Hindu countries and I respect Hinduism, but I'm not a Hindu. I'm only going to live once. And I don't want to be bored. And just repeating the conventional wisdom or repeating what the idea that you came in with, we've all read versions of that, right? It's, I was right. Oh, and did I remind you? I was right. And that's boring. Repeating what you thought before is dull. And I go even further. I'm also a newspaper columnist. Mm -hmm. And if I write a column and nobody is pissed off, you know what, Al? It was a shitty column. Seriously. Mm -hmm. That's a good sign of a bad column. Because what it did was it just confirmed whatever ideas were in people's heads beforehand. I think your goal as a scholar should be somehow to challenge that wisdom and yourself and to find gaps and holes and contrasting ways of looking at the world. So Other ones are boring. You, the first person you challenge is yourself. Correct. Absolutely. And I say this to my grad students a lot. As teachers are like parents, we just say the same thing over and over. And my first question for anyone that's doing research is, what surprised you? And if you can't answer that, it's going to be boring. And you'll bore yourself. And that means you'll bore others. And so I, I think also a corollary of that is, sorry, once you've persuaded yourself, you were talking about an argument, once you've persuaded yourself about an argument, It'll be a piece of cake to persuade others. Mm -hmm. The first task is to persuade yourself. So persuade, persuasion. What would it take, maybe for this argument, maybe for another argument that you think of, what would it take to change your mind about an argument after you've made it, after you've made it? Yeah, I think uh, I live in the present. 
I don't live in the past. And so obviously I'm also shaped by my present day experiences. And I, I can give you a couple examples. The first book that I wrote that came out of my doctoral dissertation was a study of alcohol education, which is called Distilling Democracy. And it was about the clash between the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which is the largest women's organization in the United States, and experts, these kind of coalescing experts in physiology and psychology and education about what to teach about alcohol. And what I wrote in the book was that I disagreed with what these women had to say about alcohol, but I believed more deeply in democracy. And that I thought that we should cede to the majority, even if the majority's opinion is not grounded in expert opinion. And that's not my view now. Why not? I think that what I gained was a greater appreciation of the dangers of dismissing expertise. And to tell you again, at the personal level, I'm married to an infectious disease doctor. And starting in March 2020, she was one of the leaders of Philadelphia's response to the, the COVID outbreak. And look, there are many ways of telling that story, but one of them is, one way of telling the story is just a mass skepticism bordering on cynicism about expert authority. Experts do not know everything. Scientists do not know everything, but they do know some things and they know them really well. And all of us suffer and many of us die when we demean and discard that. Now, it's worth reminding ourselves, because you don't see this in print even now, that a million people died. It's true that some of them would have died anyway, but only some. Most of those people, most of those human beings, our fellow countrywomen and countrymen, did not have to die. The reason they died is that we as a polity, we as a community, were unable to organize ourselves well enough to prevent that. Now, again, there are many dimensions to that story too, and many reasons for that. But one of them was precisely the fact that people were so cynical about expert authority. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand its legitimate authority. And so that's had a big influence on the way that I see these issues. So what's an answer that you got wrong? I think going back to my first book, one of them had to do with, I, I think, my too blithe dismissal of expertise and expert authority. Mm -hmm. But another one, I think, and maybe wrong is too strong a word, maybe naive is a better one. The reason that I wrote the new edition to Who's America, the 20th anniversary edition, which just came out, was that I felt a lot had changed in the interim two, two decades. So very briefly, the argument in the first edition was that the history wars had the wrong solution and the religion wars had no solution. So the history wars had the wrong solution because what we did to solve them was just add a new hero to the same story. So yeah, we, the books used to just be about white men. Then we started adding all kinds of other people. But the title and the theme of the book remained the same, Rise of the American Nation, Quest for Liberty. And it was Jim Lowen who passed recently, unfortunately, had the great line, have you ever noticed the physics book isn't called Triumph of the Atom? Rise of the periodic table. So the history wars had the wrong solution. And the religion wars, I felt, had no solution. If we're talking about school prayer or Bible reading or sex ed, my view was that these issues involve mutually incommensurate claims, like either he was the son of man or he wasn't, right? Either human beings share DNA with other creatures or they don't. 
either sex outside of straight marriage is a sin or it isn't. And I didn't feel there was any way that those could be reconciled. So 20 years later, I wrote a new edition because I felt that I, was, I had become wrong. Mm. And here's why. The religion wars cooled radically in ways that I did not expect. Al, when was the last time you read about a vehement dispute in a local community about evolution and creation? To be clear, those do exist. And, and I described them in the book, but in a very minor key. School prayer and Bible reading, ditto. Even sex ed has become radically less controversial. And insofar as it does become controversial, it's not directly inflected by religion. Even the don't say gay bill in Florida, I didn't hear anybody in the legislature or in the governor's office say we need that bill because gay behavior is a sin before God. Um, uh, And there are many reasons for this, by the way, for this cooling. And I think the biggest one is the country got less religious in ways I didn't anticipate. I think that's a shift we're too close to really to appreciate. So we think that if religious, these things are hard to count, but one of the things we count is uh, professed religious affiliation and reported weekly religious attendance. And those things have gone down 20% in 20 years in, in the span between these two editions. So the religion wars cooled radically. The history wars, let me put it this way, Al, and I don't know if this means I was wrong, but it was, I was naive. As per the Chinese proverb, be careful for what you wish for. So in the first edition, I'm saying, look, the way we're solving these is actually we're not engaging the, the real issues. We're just adding new groups to the same story. We know we disagree fundamentally about the American narrative. So let's let kids in on that little secret. Let's have that disagreement. Al, we're having it. Okay, we are having it. But and this comes back to the question of democratic education and whether the demos wants it. We're having it mostly in the public sphere, involving figures like Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. We're mostly not having it in our schools. Um, I think this could be an incredible teachable moment in our schools. And, and if I were king, and I know this is just a half hour segment, we don't have enough time to enumerate all the reasons that is not going to pass. But every high school teacher would give the students the 1619 Project and the state-approved textbook. And you say, okay, let's start with Columbus. What does 1619 say? What does the state-approved textbook say? Let's do the American Revolution, 1619, state-approved textbook. Let's do Andy Jackson and Native American removal, 1619, textbook. And to be clear, there are some teachers doing exercises like that, and I think we need to know more about them and celebrate them. And I try to do that in a modest way in my book. But for the most part, that's not what we're doing. And so we're not really leveraging, I think, the real advantage of this moment. And that comes back to the original question we were talking about at the beginning of this discussion. Do we want that? I want it. But who am I? That exercise I just described, Al, I describe as democratic education with a small dip. Because I think that sort of activity, that sort of dialogue, and that sort of embrace of and addressing of contrasting views is what's going to make a small d democratic citizen. But I don't know how many people agree with me. I think, to be honest, I've done a poor job making a democratic case for democratic education. I think if more people in the demos wanted what I just described, we would have it. 